Brock, I've got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> and? <laughs> I actually, I didn't. That's the thing. Everything you've helped me with Canopy so far has been a fantastic. That has been a, a fantastic project to kind of get to work with uh, on other projects. The canopy is a a layer that sits on top of Selenium, uh, which is a web browser driver uh, tool that allows you to write uh, coded unit tests mm-hmm. and actually test your code against a live website and kind of actually test with browsers, multiple browsers. I had a chance to use Selenium a couple of years ago, but it was strictly in a site scraping capacity. Yeah. It was gross. It really is. But it was, I mean, it was a good tool for it. Yeah. What we had to do was gross. Uh, Canopy makes it a lot less gross. (laughs) It makes it seem more, uh, a lot less like a, like a slimy piece of goo and more like a little teddy bear. (laughs) So. So Canopy is, uh, is that, that, that's a specifically for testing. Yeah, it uses Selenium. Yeah, yes. it uses Selenium under the hood, uh, but the script is written in F sharp. So I can say things like click this button, assert that the URL is now this, assert that this is visible on the page, assert that this is selected. It's pretty slick. Sweet. And it wraps a lot of the, like, with Selenium, like you would have to uh, specify, click this button, wait for something else to appear, or the, you had to do a lot more timing. And Canopy makes it so that you don't have to manage any of that. It also uses CSS selectors, which is super nice. Mm-hmm. So if I want to say, after this action, assert that the third button has the text of enter name. You know, I just write a CSS selector, which is a t- technology I already know. So that's pretty useful. Yeah. And because it's F sharp, it compiles down to an executable. So in theory, I could execute all my tests without even having Visual Studio open, which is nice because I can just point it at the production site. So I, the thing that I'm using it for right now is more for regression tests. I want to make sure that as we're adding new features, that we're not breaking old features. And so I can just, every time we do a deployment, in addition to running all our unit tests, we can run the Selenium tests and make sure that the site is still working. And, and Canopy will also uh, handle labels. So if you have your inputs or your a label is tied to inputs, you can say, uh, essentially put this text in this label and it will automatically resolve to the text box and then put the, put the text in there. So the, it, it, at least for me, it seems like it's a very elegant way to uh, do the UI coding without a lot of, um, 
a lot of extra work uh, outside of just knowing what's available in Canopy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, is this an Angular app? No, th- this is just, uh, it, it's what, well, just an F-sharp uh, project that you include the... No, I mean the, the thing you're testing. Oh, it could be an Angular app, or it could be uh, just a regular website. Oh, okay. I thought you were using it on an actual thing you were building. Uh, I, in the past, I have. Okay. Uh, yeah. not, not presently. What I'm getting at is I wonder, um, does it have any problems with a single-page app setup with the, like dynamic elements being created and populated in? Because I've seen other um, web testing frameworks have trouble like with stuff that loads after... The initial page load. I, I'm testing it on a Sitefinity <clears throat> site, and so we have a lot of things coming in. And as long as you can find it with the CSS selector, it works pretty well. The Selenium tool is actually a browser plugin, mm-hmm. so it's not doing any mumbo jumbo where it's like trying to interpret and render the HTML and the JavaScript by itself. I worked with a tool like that years ago where it just was the browser. And it was super flaky. Yeah, you'd have all kinds of other inaccuracies there. Because yes. what if you had an Internet Explorer bug versus a Firefox bug versus a Chrome bug? You wouldn't be able to detect that. Because right. you'd have these, this fourth browser. So Selenium, I'm trying to remember the name of the plugin. Do you remember what it is, Brock? It's like the Selenium web driver. Yeah. But it's just a plugin. There's a plugin for Firefox, which it comes out of the box with Firefox. But then there's a plugin for Chrome, for Chrome and, IE. and IE. And so you're actually just running in your Chrome instance. Yeah, it's it's pretty slick. I have used it on a an Angular single page uh, application once. And I did run into a couple timing issues, but... My, I think my issue was I was trying to stay, stay very high level and not trying to get, uh, not not to use the CSS selectors, and, but if I had used the CSS selectors, I imagine that it would have been pretty easy. Uh, it, it, I imagine that it would have worked. So, you guys ever test driven with that? I'm not talking about like later. And. Like, yeah, like test drive UI. Like, I expect this to happen. Fail. Okay, go build some HTML. Pass. I did uh, a little bit on the project that I used it on. Um, I, I didn't have, really have an opinion about it. That'd be an interesting approach. It'd be kind of tricky with my current project because Sitefinity does a little bit of mangling with the names. And mm-hmm. so and you'd have to do it, but then you'd have to come in and update the CSS selector right. to use the class that Sitefinity <laughs> generated for you. But that'd be an interesting approach. That's not what we're doing, but it's a good a idea. Lot of, a lot of nudging. I don't know that it would work as well. Like the workflow <laughs> wouldn't be. Yeah. That's, if you're going to test drive something, the flow has to be there. Although I, in doing the coded, uh, you know, the canopy tests, it did highlight a lot of user experience issues uh, that 
Initially, we did not expect to occur, or it highlighted places that we could uh, drastically improve the user experience. Hmm. And that, like in what way? Because that's that's really that's kind of funny that a you know a robot is revealing your human experience uh, the, issues. The, it wasn't so much the ro- robot doing it, but the the act of programming the robot to do it. Um, the the issue was we we were taking an existing application and uh, giving it a, a big facelift, uh, going from uh, a web forms application that uh, looked like it was from about 1999 ish area. Web forms from 1999 would be pretty. Well, no, I mean, it, well, the, the styling was <laughs> from uh, looked like it was from the he- per, uh, period. Sorry, I'm just messing. <laughs> but uh, it, we were giving a facelift and essentially a complete rewrite into uh, MVC, but we had to maintain essentially the same kind of uh, user experience as much as possible. And in, so after we had ported it over, and we started doing some of the coded. A unit test it was like huh you know it'd be really nice if you know this thing was automatically checked or if like we didn't have to open up a modal dialog box uh, to upload a picture mm-hmm. uh, and so we could so just gave you like, like focused you on what was happening step by step right made it, you rethink it yeah in the initial like conversion <clears throat> it uh, I, I wasn't really focused on like the user experience it was just uh, you know get the code make it work in the new environment and then kind of going back through and actually going through the you know the steps that a user would have to go through to do certain tasks that that was the point where I found a lot of points for improvement so one of the things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently as I've come into a couple different projects, is whether or not I want to approach a brownfield project by upgrading the technology or working with the existing ones. The last three projects I've come into had some kind of legacy system we were integrating with. And it's each time it's been an interesting discussion to say, all right, here's where we're currently at. You know, this is using, you know, we're three versions behind in SQL Server. You know, we're not using Entity Framework at all. We're version behind on Syfinity, things like that. And how do you make that decision of I'm going to do this project in the technology it's currently in because it's clearly working, it's in production, it's providing value versus I want to get the benefit of moving to the latest technology, the best tools, the most recent libraries. Trouble is that's that's a hidden project. That's project inside a project. It is. <clears throat> like, and if, I, yeah, I feel like that's a dependent project. Because if you've got enough work in an old system, in a legacy system, to call it a project, enough actual feature changes that you want to do, that's I don't think that's going to go well until you've you know at least got a clean brownfield. You've got something that's organized that has the way you would develop those features today should be supported. A lot of that comes down to cost justification. Exactly. Now. Exactly. I mean, because all of us in this room see the obvious advantages of doing that, but mm-hmm. you try to explain it to whoever's writing the check. And well, what am I going to What they... am I going to be able to do? You know, after we do this, that I can do now is going to be the question. If you know, you can't give them something concrete to explain that, then it's going to be a tough sell. But have you been on enough of, enough maintenance projects, enough brownfield things? Where I love that word. It's so gross. <laughs> uh, where that, I mean, 
have you ever have you ever done it one way and done it the other way and compared the cost? Because I would think a significant set of changes to be made to the app that the cost would be equivalent doing it, you know, the the brown way versus, you know, taking the time to upgrade up front and get things settled. Well, let me give you an example. One of the projects that I was involved with recently is a legacy application that in Visual Studio uses the website template instead of the web application template. Website projects are not compiled until you browse them, which means they don't support having unit tests in a separate assembly. And this was a project that I think was only like three or four weeks in duration. But it also meant, part of me said, the project is too short. We're going to continue to use this older technology, which uses a lot of older technologies. Uh, but we're just going to stick with where it's at. We're going to make the changes and deal with the fact that we won't have any unit tests, at least not in a separate assembly, which is best practice. Versus taking the time in a compressed schedule already to like convert everything over to a different template. To Jeremy's point, the customer would say, what additional functionality am I getting here? And I would say, well, you'll have better quality. And of course, they would say, well, there weren't going to be any bugs in the first place, right? Um, so, <laughs> they should ask exactly. Microsoft that about Windows. <laughs> I think that, that that argument has kind of sailed. But with talking with some of the other guys, I know this comes up. And I don't know why, Jeremy, maybe you can correct me. It seems like this comes up with uh, SQL Server somewhat frequently because there actually are new and worthwhile features. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, do you have any experiences with that where it's like, well, if we moved to this newer version of SQL Server, we could have feature X that we don't have previously. Yeah, it does happen quite a bit, really. We, we see a lot with uh, like master data, that happens a lot. It wasn't in anything prior to 2008 R2, and that version really sucked, so. Uh, you know, if there's any need for master data, then yeah, it, we're definitely going to lean on them pretty hard to upgrade to 2012 because you get an entire set of tools for managing that data with 2012, 2014 that just didn't exist before. So then you're manually creating everything and it's not going to be as good as what would come out of the box with the newer version. Um, that's one example. You get T-SQL constructs, new constructs in the, the language, the scripting language too, and the different versions. Sometimes that matters. Most of the time it's more of a convenience thing, but BI, you see that a lot too. They, they have an entire, you know, talking about the Microsoft platform and you have an entire ecosystem of tools and it's changing rapidly like everything does with microsoft there's a lot of uh, a lot of those tools that come out that you know if you're not on the right version it's not going to work so and even if you're on the right version depending on you know like uh, analysis services now has multi-dimensional olap but it also has a new tabular paradigm and there's certain end user tools that only work with tabular so that's then being determined by the version because again tabular didn't exist prior to 2012 but then it also effect, is affected by the addition that you're getting because it's only available in i think business intelligence and enterprise it's not in standard so we do have a lot of those discussions where depending on what they're wanting to do and you know what their needs are and what features are going to work best for them can drive a pretty significant conversation about which SKU they end up buying which is interesting because a lot of the experiences i have are either libraries or open source tools. And so there's not a cost discussion. That's 
that brings a whole other realm into it of we want to upgrade this version of SQL Server. And oh, by the way, if you don't have MSDN, uh, you better get your checkbook out. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it, it, your pocket's been burning with all the money. That <laughs> well, I mean, okay. And how does the licensing cost? I mean, okay. If there's if there's if there's a new feature or paradigm or you know something that that, that helps that projects work, like if that shrinks that budget of development time. You got to balance. You got to balance that license cost against against developer cost because one of those expands. Right, and that's to your earlier point of does it cost does it cost more to do it you know Mm -hmm. the old way versus. Yeah, the the new way when when it's something I said in the SQL world, it's it's a little bit more clear cut, I think, because that you know you have a clear set of features now that specifically addresses that problem. Mm-hmm. Well, take software a, it may not be as black and white all the time, I guess. Well, to take a brownfield application that's using ADO.NET and all of the the SQL is in line. No, thank you. Or in store procedures, whichever, and uh, then you want to bring in any framework do you rewrite uh, the whole data access layer or if your project's crunched you know like eric was saying you know you only have a couple weeks to do it or do you just implement the changes you want with the new technology this is it's easy for me to say as a nerd surrounded by a couple of layers of other people who touch checkbooks but Projects being crunched is the root problem. Mm-hmm. Healthcare.gov was a crunched project, and I don't know. I don't know what you know. Yeah, I, yeah. There's I, yeah, you ways. have to. I mean, you could you could argue. Yeah, it depends on how it turns out. I mean, changing that, you know, putting in the time to to change that data layer to something that's that's going to react better to the rest of the changes that we make is going to accelerate everything else. And how do you how do you sell that to somebody who doesn't care, literally doesn't care about ADO.net, any framework or any other And will understand right. the future implications. Well, the, then that leads me to the fact that they have come to a software development firm as the expert to figure it out for them. And so this is, this is the cost to do it right. When I go get my car repaired, I don't know, first thing about fixing cars, um, I trust I trust the the person I'm taking it to because I'm giving them a lot of money to do that and probably too much. If I learned how to fix a car myself, I'd probably save some money, but I would know a whole lot more about cars and have less time. But, you know, that's that's the that's the expert argument. And how much Mm -hmm. how much do we need to let on about how we're doing it? Right. Like from their perspective, this is and this was in a blog post I wrote a couple of years ago. It's there's the Kent Beck thing. Make it work. Make it right. Make it fast. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, those are our steps, but the client sees make it work. Whoever's come to you, coming to you as a software expert wants you to do that first one, and they assume the other two come along with it. Mm-hmm. So do you, like, do you upsell them, make it right? Do you upsell them, make it fast? Or do you just do the thing that they want? Um, again, sometimes that depends on the client, too, if they're in the size of their budget and, like, so the amount of time they have to work with. Which is usually how time crunches come uh, in the first place. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of put on you because you, you have to use up so much of your budget or, or you only have so much budget to use, especially in the enterprise world. Yeah, cause in, in some of those cases, I can see definitely see the case for an upsell because if you just build that into the cost and don't explain it, then 
you have to go home and explain to your family why they're only going to get to eat every other week until you you find a client that's willing to pay for that. Yeah. Well, how, how do you rebut the argument, well, why don't you just build it fast initially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why is that an upsell? Yeah, is why the, does that is have the to point be is why why does that why does that detail that level of detail need to be revealed? Well, and guess. do we maybe as do we are we doing something wrong that we can't make it work, make it right and make it fast in a more in, in, a, in a way that meets the budget? What are we doing wrong? What, why does this take so long? Well, I guess I was thinking in the context of you're talking about making modifications to a legacy system. Hmm. So in that case, yeah. why isn't it in the first place? Well, because I didn't write it in the first place. Somebody else did using older technology. Mm-hmm. So right away, you've got technical debt that you're making up. Do you want to incur more technical debt? And do we do we explain technical debt to the client? Mm-hmm. Do we say, hey, you're just kicking the can. This is going to be a problem for you later. Wipe our hands of it. See ya. No. So does th- that, that brings up an interesting uh, point that even if you have a perfect... Uh, application over time or once it's released that application starts incurring technical debt because in 2006 ADO.net was the best thing in the world well fast forward a handful of years and now we're we're in the mindset of we'll just use any framework or some mm-hmm. other ORM and we now see ADO.net as some pretty big technical debt. So mm-hmm. does that change the argument or do, would that change how we pitch software or, or kind of pitch what we do or the changes that we're making to the client saying previously that how if we're trying to sell a product you know ourselves and to get them an application do they would the client see that the accumulation of debt over time as you know a bad thing and a reason not to you know potentially even write an application i'm trying to parse your question it was was very dense (laughs) (laughs) there were a few in there and are you are you saying that the client then you know once presented with the idea of technical debt has a choice to go back to paper and pencil well, paper, but, but paper and going, pencil has technical debt too, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just tell them that. <laughs> of course, if you just did it on a mainframe, <laughs> uh, you know, you have people who are <laughs> the programs from the 1960s that are still running today. So, hey, man, the RPG community is strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of seems like the environment that we're programming in is a very fluid environment whereas other environments like mainframe development or even pen and pencil or pen and paper are those are a little bit more consistent in their application and their longevity where the stuff that we are building seems to have a shelf life it is always going to be the reality i think of, of modern tools the tools that are happening right now is that they're going to change every couple of years maybe more frequently that's that's got to be a constant that's got to be an inevitable thing if you want modern software so it helps obviously if if, um, everybody at the table understands that up front so like this is a new change yeah yeah i think yeah i mean it's yeah it's how do you how do you set yourself up to be in the best position for change which is coming I agree. And I think that would be a good argument to bring up with the technical debt that 
get get the application and just use it until the operating system's not supported anymore, and then try and put it on a new operating system. But technology, at least in the web world right now, we're we're building a new kind of technology stack, and it's very piecemeal right now. Mm. It seems like with it's piecemeal up close. Yeah, you know, there's web, there's mobile, there's data. There's, I mean, this is happening. This is across the board. The, the frameworks, the tools are changing. And back, you know, back in the day, of those when those rock solid mainframe code was changing, I bet there's a lot of stuff changing around that too. Maybe not as mm-hmm. fast, right? But I mean, from their perspective, they had probably had some trouble keeping up so that's just how things are well it's not just uh, yeah i was gonna say it's not just frameworks that are changing as soon as you've write, written a second and third line of code you've got technical debt it's it just it rots all the time every time you change it every time you touch it that's you know that's an opportunity to clean up after yourself i agree or it, an it opportunity seems- to leave a mess for somebody else to clean up Every single and it seems like the progression of the web and software development is trying to make up for uh, limitations in the hardware. Like a decade ago, computers—if you had like a gig of RAM, you you were doing really, really well. Uh, or if you had a multi-core processor, you were on the bleeding edge, and you know, most people had dial-up. So instead of having Angular single-page apps that produce a lot of data up front to send to the browser that would take forever to load up, they would take smaller chunks of data and send it to the browser and to display and then communicate. So the because the hardware and the our technology stack is changing and kind of evolving, we're changing how we solve problems to to accommodate the new change of balance in the hardware network balance. Sure, Redundantly redundant. <laughs> also, also balance. Yes. Remember unions from C++? Oh, yeah. yeah. Union code stood around leaving on shelves. <laughs> so if this is, this is a retrospective for us. One thing, kind of talk about it, ask you guys if you're doing. Um, one thing that's working for me and my teams is retrospective. It's very meta to bring up retrospective in a retrospective. <laughs> I, was, I was looking forward to you calling me out on that. Yeah, so like I've gotten into the habit after every iteration, we have, we take like half an hour and we sit down and we talk about what went well, what didn't, and I take notes and I've, at least the last several of these, um, I've, you know, kind of gone back and formalized the notes as team commitments. Kind of set. And it's it's been incredibly productive in terms of like tuning how the team works together and how people are communicating and hey here's a problem hey here's a way to solve this let's try this next time. No, I'm a big fan of the retrospective. It's you take a lot of the stuff that you would normally come out in a post mortem and be able to apply it midstream. The client I was with previously did retrospectives really religiously, and it brought out a lot of the performance improvements and process improvements that made the project successful. One of the things they did that comes from some of the guys that are scrum purists is that they would always have food, and we would often do it off-site. And the idea was that it would make it more informal, and so people were more willing to talk about how they felt about things, which, as engineers, for the most part, we don't have feelings but a lot of the things that need to be improved about a project 
are about pain points and a lot of the times that's more subjective than objective right yeah so a lot of times it's hard to say well we're not we we have a communication issue with with qa so if it were more of a formal meeting you might not be able to verbalize that but if you say you know what there's something that's just not working in our communication between qa and the development team and so then you can have a chance just to chat about that it's been pretty good. It was very useful on that project. Yeah, there's sometimes there's a tendency to start like you like you said we're you know a bunch of robots we don't have feelings and there's a tendency to want to keep talking about code in that meeting or like you know like here's a, here's a problem I found in the you know in this module and well here's how and they start coding out loud at each other and like how do you reach in there and say no feelings <laughs> is it that you are talking about that or is it the camaraderie that you're building because like you're eating together mm-hmm. yeah there's that both yeah that definitely opens the door to like we're not in a meeting room and i've done it i've done read the retrospectives that i've done with a couple of different teams some of them i have in this room around a table with chairs and the other one the other one i do downstairs on the couches and there's there's not a huge Hugely noticeable difference between the two, but there is one. There is a difference. What would be an interesting comparison would be to walk over to Forteza uh-huh. and you know sit around the table at Forteza over lattes mm-hmm. and see. I was just thinking about <laughs> what are we doing here, you guys? <laughs> Get them all loaded up on caffeine. Yeah, that as a side note, one of the things we did on a past project because it was over the summer was we would have our standing meeting actually walking over to the bagel place. I can't remember the name of the little shop. But we would just do our daily stand-up as we walked over to get bagels and walk back. Nice. And that was a really healthy team-building thing. Yeah, we the project I was talking about where we had really good retros. One of the funny things was that because we wanted quiet so we could talk, because we went to this restaurant that wasn't very good, but it was always empty and it was always quiet. <laughs> so those, like, those sound related. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and so we would go there at the end of every sprint and have very marginal food, but generally enjoy it and talk about how to make the project work better. I think I'm going to have to start doing that. It's not something that I've done before. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, a lot of times for me, once I start leading the team, I a lot of times forget to... Like, I, I keep moving forward, but sometimes I forget to kind of remember to look back and kind of see if there's any issues that we can address moving forward. Yeah, one of the things that's hard in a, in a especially in a consulting environment, you know, time is money. So how do I justify taking a half hour or an hour, you know, to, to talk about feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially when that half an hour is times the entire breadth of your team. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, Multiplied by heads. Um but you, can, you have to have the teddy bear that you have to pass around. You can only talk when you're holding it. In, in your retrospect. <laughs> um, well, that's a good yeah. point, too. When you do yours, or actually there you guys, do you involve like, you know, PM or nope. QA or just development? Only nerds. And that's that's kind of an important thing is where you, where you cut everybody out. You find some space that's, mm-hmm. this is a safe space kind of space. And... Um, I think that's big. Yeah, I think I think so too. Uh, The review, you know, a review meeting with demos and everything. It's fun to have everybody and even adjacent to the project in there to see what's going on. That's cool visibility. But yeah, in terms of looking 
having an honest conversation. You got to limit it. Where I was going was like, you take that half hour or hour, whatever it takes, um, out of out of your week, out of your every two weeks. But it makes it's again, it's an optimization thing, like like cleaning up legacy code, like upgrading legacy code. It, it makes the rest of the time better, more efficient. You've more than paid for it. Yeah, it's definitely a sh- axe sharpening activity. So a lot of times things that come out of that have to do with more efficient communication or just process improvements. And maybe it costs you four man hours to have the retrospective, but then you gain back six or seven mm-hmm. over the course of the next couple of sprints. You know, one of the things, here's a good example. In one of our retrospectives on a previous project, it came up that we were having some communication issues with email. It's just not fast enough in certain cases and not, it was just, uncoordinated Hmm. and so in the retrospective we decided to start using hip chat which is a persistent chat room and for that team that was just perfect it ended up becoming a very central part of how we communicated to the point where our project manager who was he managed a couple different projects but he would periodically just come in and read the backlog and see okay what have these guys discussed over the last couple hours they're talking about star trek and that was, and that happened, right? Those types of things <laughs> came up. Order coming. Well, it's it's the intangible tangibles, right? That, that mm. putting security or baking security into your application, you, you don't know how much money you're saving by doing it, but it, it's a risk mm-hmm. uh, benefit. Yeah, and a lot of the things like this that have been working out, at least for me and my teams, are these things that start as counterintuitive hippie bullcrap yeah you just have to have the confidence that you will get something out of it initially and then once you do it you can look back and see oh hey you know i I got this out of it and we resolved potentially some issues potentially with the team or Mm -hmm. intra team yeah uh, related i mean really even if you don't have anything quantifiable as far as process improvement there's still a positive effect on morale and camaraderie and the cohesion of the team. Yeah, if something did come up, they know they have a place to talk about it. And that is so important for a developer to keep the stress level down Mm -hmm. and to have a way to release that stress in a productive manner. Clutching the teddy bear very tightly. Yeah, rocking in the corner. (laughs) Choking him. The other day, <laughs> ripping the head off. The other nice thing about having periodic retrospectives is it gives you a very clear time boxed way to try something. Mm-hmm. So you come into one retrospective and say, you know what, I want to introduce this other process thing. Like, hey, let's start marking stuff in TFS when the status changes. And there might be some disagreement on the team of like, is this going to be beneficial? Is there going to be more ceremony? And there's that interesting thing where you can say, you know what, let's try it for one sprint. Let's get objective evidence. Everybody commit to it, whether you like it or not. You're going to do it. We'll come back in one sprint and say, how do we feel about it? Now, instead of just talking about what you think, you have some kind of... Here's what happened. Yeah, some objective way to say, hey, you know what, this is working. Or, you know what, didn't provide the value compared to the effort we put in, we're done. And it was totally low cost, low risk, because it was two weeks. Yeah. And there's that natural pressure release valve to say, we tried it, it's not going well, mm-hmm. scrap it. Yeah, the thing that the thing that I'm starting to run into now with these is often these meetings happen on Friday, the way I, I've scheduled them. And then uh, I go and have a weekend and my kids jump on me and I sleep and 
then I come back on Monday, and although I've written everything down, I've lost some of it, and I'm sure the team has lost some of it. You know, we have a list of maybe four or five distinct points that come out of these meetings every time. And I'm starting to, we're starting to have some of the same problems over and over again. Hey, didn't we commit to like fixing this one in this way, or at least trying something? And, And inevitably I go back through the notes and there it is. The, the very bullet that would have saved us trouble had we remembered to change the thing. So well, then do you, do you <laughs> potentially move it to like a Thursday or a Monday? That could be that could be um, what we do. What, what my current proposed solution is, is that on the Monday, we've got like a planning meeting. And, you know, I, I go back to the retrospective notes and open the planning meeting with reading the commitments from the retrospective notes, just getting fresh in everybody's head, which I didn't do this Monday because I forgot to. But it's in it's in the retrospective notes. Well, something we did with some success was include our bullet points, our action items in the retrospective email or in the burn down email for that mm-hmm. sprint. So in TFS, there's like that little box at the top that you can customize in the burn down email. And so we would just put it in there. So every day, and this is part of our daily ceremony on that project in particular, was everyone looked at their burn down email real religiously. And so the top of the burn down email, like, well, you know, all code reviews will be finished within three days was one one time and I there you know, it's on our list too <laughs> uh you know whatever it was for that sprint like remember to put something in hip chat when deployment starts mm-hmm. things like that were always at the very top and yes by the end of the sprint you got to the point where you're glossing over it but hopefully by that time you had somewhat internalized it yeah they burn in a the other thing i found and um it's one of those things that over time there is kind of a law of diminishing returns where after six months, your team is really starting to get dialed in as to how we're going to work together. But it was always, I think there was at least one retro where we didn't have anything. It's like, we feel we're performing pretty well. Let's keep doing what we're doing. But then it's just kind of like a pep rally, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, we're doing things pretty well. Let's keep it up. Which is not something without value. Right. right. And the That's good. You just, just got to keep it short and keep it from getting awkward. Yeah. Yeah, the, the acknowledgement of success uh, is very often skipped or elided in a lot of what we do when we lead teams. Kind of recognizing that you know the wins and you know the progress that we've made on, on a project. I think that that's very powerful developers because it lets them know, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing something good and the project is moving in the right direction. Brock, I really appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> Thanks, John. That was, I, th- I feel like it was a successful uh, way to button a, a conversation. Thanks, John. I feel better. Less stressful. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we're going to <laughs>